0: because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
2: The reason why I think CAS is such a useful term in understanding human interactions and the impulse to, to categorize and then rank is that has the potential to take, uh, certainly, Americans away from the emotions that get attached to race and racism.
1: That's Isabel Wilkerson. In 1994, as the Chicago bureau chief for the New York Times, she became the first African-American woman to win a Pulitzer Prize in journalism. Wilkerson joined me in August of 2020 to discuss her latest book, *Cast: The Origins of Our Discontents. It became a New York Times bestseller and was nominated for the National Book Award. This week, we're re-airing in full the conversation I had with Wilkerson about caste, which examines how hierarchies form across societies, from the United States to India to Nazi Germany. Nearly two years after my conversation with Wilkerson, I am still thinking about her book and its lessons. That conversation is coming up. Stay tuned.
0: Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash or wherever you listen.
3: Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. This week,
1: we are revisiting a discussion I had with author Isabel Wilkerson about her best-selling book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Her work remains urgent today. Isabel Wilkerson, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the book. It's called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, and let me just, can I add my small voice to all the waves of praise that you've gotten for the book. I read every page from beginning to end over the weekend, and it had a lot of praise that preceded it, but I found it to be an enormously important work. Can't put it down. For me, it was a combination of not just the ideas that you have in the book and the the analysis in the book, but also how you string it all together with stories and metaphors. And so I I also could not put it down. So it's it's a magnificent achievement and I congratulate you. And we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about some of the things you say in the book. This took you a number of years, am I right?
2: It did. It actually began with uh, my first book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which was about the, the great migration of African-Americans who were fleeing the Jim Crow South. And in order to write that book, I had to do a tremendous amount of research into what life was like for people during the hundred years or so of formal uh, segregation system in the Jim Crow South and made these discoveries of what it was actually like, that that it was so control that it was actually against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together. There were separate Bibles, one for black people, one for white people, when they were swearing to tell the truth on in court. There were restrictions uh, at every turn based upon what you look like. In other words, the group to which you were attached or categorized And I emerged from that research and also from having interviewed 1,200 people and then doing a tremendous amount of reading as to what anthropologists and sociologists had had described that world as. And that's where I came across the term caste to describe the Jim Crow South as it existed, as many, even Americans, are not really fully often educated because it's not emphasized or even really taught. The Great Migration is not taught in schools or has not until this book came out. So most people really didn't have a sense of what it was like to live in that world. And the people who did the research into that world, the anthropologists and sociologists who immersed themselves in that world, doing ethnographies in the 1930s and 40s, emerged with that word as the only word they felt was uh, accurate to describe the hierarchy that they observed and that they they actually lived for a time. And that is how I came to the word And so the word racism does not appear in the warmth of other sons, although many people might attach that word to the book, but that word does not appear in the book. The word that I I came to use that I thought was more sufficient and comprehensive in capturing what the people were, were enduring was caste.
1: So before we get to what you mean by caste, and you're right, it's not something that people have a deep understanding of in the United States, caste and race, as we'll get to in a moment, they overlap, they intersect with each other in various ways. But first, I thought I would ask you about what your thoughts are on what race and racism are. And here are a couple of things you say in the book. Quote, race as we have come to know it is not real. It is a fiction told by modern humans for so long that it has come to be seen as sacred truth, end quote. And then you also say, color is a fact. Race is a social construct, end quote. Explain what you mean by those things.
2: Well, race as we now know it is a fairly new term in the arc of human history it's it's only 4 or 500 years old in terms of what we now view as the delineation of human beings on the basis of skin color and other physiological characteristics This does not mean that the skin color is new to humanity or that the physical characteristics that might distinguish one uh, group of people have not always been there. People have always looked the various ways that they do. But the way that they look did not delineate either by law or custom or culture in the ways that it ultimately would in the early years and decades of colonial America. In this country, the idea of race is relatively new. The idea of race and humans identifying themselves on the basis of what they look like solely is relatively new. Before then, people were Irish or they were Polish or they were Hungarian or they were Ndebele or they were Yoruba, whatever they might have been. They didn't need to identify themselves by color because they were all fairly contained on land where everyone pretty much looked the same. So that would not have been the signifying, determining factor of how you identify a person. But when people from all over the world, peoples from all over the world, converged uh, in the new world, then the the metrics of hierarchy began to be established and then calcified. And one of the things that I say about caste in general, as a phenomenon, as an idea, is that caste is essentially an artificial hierarchy of graded ranking of human value in a society that determines standing and stature and respect, benefit of the doubt, access to resources through no fault or action of one's own. I mean, you are born to that role and that placement in the caste system. And each hierarchy, each caste system uses a different metric that works for their culture, their society, and that, you know, going back to however they were first identified, whether by use of religion, by use of ethnicity, by use of of geographic origin. And in the case of the United States, skin color became the signifier of where one fell or where one was assigned in the artificial hierarchy that was created here. In other words, where a person was situated in the hierarchy within the caste system was determined by what they looked like. Race became the tool for delineating people. Race became the signal of a category that you were assigned to. Race was is the cue. Was the cue and remains in shadow, as we have inherited all of this, is the cue of where one is positioned in the hierarchy. So that is the difference between them. I, I say that you know, race, the caste is the bones, race is the skin. And race is what we can see, but it's the signal of, as to where one belongs in the caste system or where one is perceived as belonging in the caste system.
1: Yeah, you quote from James Baldwin in your book, who said, no one was white before they came to America, because that's not how people thought about themselves. And then you also say later in the book, you know, there are no black people in Africa. They're just themselves. They didn't become black until they came to America. What was different about America that caused these delineations to be made because people have been around for a long time?
2: Yes, and and the idea of slavery is obviously a part of American history, but of course it is obviously a part of world history and, and you know humans have enslaved others for you know for millennia. So slavery as an idea is not new. What made it distinctive in the United States was the idea of chattel slavery, the idea that you were born into essentially an enslaved caste of people who could not escape. By any means, as it was conceived by law, that you you inherited the standing, meaning the low standing of one's mother. It was passed through the, the mother and it was generational and with no means of escape unless you literally kind of kidnapped yourself and then escaped, meaning you were, you were viewed as having taken the property of someone else because you didn't even belong to yourself that was one way and of course there was an entire network of enforcement to keep people from being doing from doing that and unimaginable punishment for people who managed to escape that way so very very few people did when you consider how many people were enslaved and then of course one could you know work really hard and there could be exceptions where you could have been where some slave owner might have had a change of heart and and freed their uh, enslaved people, but the escape routes were narrow, very narrow. And so this was the origin. These were the origins of the hierarchies that we live with today. The subtitle of the book is meaningful, and that is it's the origins of our discontents. It's an attempt to look back, to find out where did this begin? How did we get to this point? Where did the gradations and artificial hierarchies, where did this emerge? And so when people were brought here, uh, you know, kidnapped and brought across the Atlantic during the transatlantic slave trade, they entered into what became a bipolar caste system, unlike the one in, in India that has the four main Varna's, and then the uh, the outcast uh, of Dalits. This was a bipolar caste system in which there was the dominant group, which would be the British colonists themselves, and then the um, the ones at the bottom, meaning the people of African descent who were brought in to be enslaved. Literally, by arriving, they were they were assigned clearly to the very bottom of what was an emerging bipolar caste system. I should also, of course, say that the Indian caste system, the original, there are some similarities, of course, many, 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 many differences. That caste system, the original caste system, the most recognizable in the world, is very, very complex with thousands of jatis or subcasts beneath the, the main varna. So I recognize that. I'm merely saying that the American one was a bipolar system with the two- Poles of the, you know, the dominant caste and then the subordinated caste and that the that anyone entering that caste system, getting to your question and sorry for the long winded way of getting to it, but anyone entering that system who did not automatically fit either as British or as African of African descent had to navigate this bipolar world, which then created what I call middle castes of people who who sometimes move about in between. And there are many different names for people in that group. People might say people of color, they might say marginalized people. In earlier decades and centuries of American history, the groups that I mentioned that were not British but were European also had to find ways to fit into that uh, bipolar system. And upon arrival, as we just discussed, when they arrived, they were not necessarily thinking about, nor had they ever had to think about themselves as white. That was not a term that you would use in describing yourself if you were Polish or if you were Hungarian in, you know, 1892. I mean, you just would not, that's not the language that would have been necessary or how people would have needed to see themselves. But upon arrival, they then ended up being assigned to that category.
1: What's also different between the Indian caste system and what you talk about with respect to America is that that vocabulary is very familiar in India. I'm I'm Indian, I was born in India, and someone writes a book about caste And I've read some of the the works of Dr. Ambedkar and others that you refer to in the book. No one blinks an eye. There's a huge amount of scholarship about the caste system in India. You write a book called Caste, The Origins of Our Discontents, that goes to some of the issues that other people frame as a matter of, of race and racism. And some people raise their eyebrows, which I think is kind of interesting. The other thing that resonated with me, and you may not appreciate this, is the extent to which when you have a caste system like you have in India how much that goes with you even when you leave India. So I left the country when I was a year old, came to the United States with my father and mother who wanted to come to the U.S. for a better life. And I was thinking back when I was reading one of your chapters that I was told, here we were growing up living in New Jersey, and I was told, I don't know, just as a matter of sort of history or background, or I don't know, some kind of pride by my father, what our cast was. Do you want to take a guess?
2: I have not been able to see you and in inter- interacting with other people, which is one of the things that I say in the book, was helpful to me in being able to ascertain it. But statistically speaking, most of the people who had the wherewithal to get this far from the originating country of India would have been upper caste people, one of the upper castes.
1: So, yes, I was told that we and our family were Kshatriyas, right, the warriors. And, you know, said with some pride, again, it was to us, my brother and I, to my brother and me, it was just sort of trivia and kind of interesting in the same way they would tell us other stories about the motherland. But what's also interesting to me is you have a scene in the book where you're talking to a scholar, I think at a conference from India, who describes himself as being part of the Kshatriya caste, the warrior caste, and you think to yourself, this is kind of a small guy. You think of this guy as being a warrior. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The same could be said of members of my family. So it's it's an oddity and a weirdness over time that I think still kind of confuses people. The other thing you say about caste is race is the front man for caste. What does that mean?
2: It means that it is the most visible thing that we see. It does the heavy lifting for what is ultimately a hierarchy that is not visible to people, because people get focused on what they can see. And as we were saying about how color is a fact, but race is a social construct, none of this is actually real. It's not real. None of this is real. This is an effort to try to see beneath what we think we know. And, you know, we get so sidetracked by what we see and race becomes the the most visible manifestation of what's underneath it, which is the, the hierarchy that is the foundation. And the reason why I think caste is such a useful term in understanding human interactions and the impulse to to categorize and then rank is that has the potential to take uh, certainly Americans away from the emotions that get attached to race and racism and, and other language that we we use now, white supremacy, whatever the words might be. The words that the longer we use them, then in some ways, the, the less we're able to hear them. And I think that caste does not have that freight. For the American ear, it allows us to, in my view, it allows us to focus on the structure of a thing. You know, caste, I I just became really quite fascinated with the way that in English, and also obviously coming from the Romance languages of caste and casta, the Portuguese term that was ultimately used late in the game, of course, in in defining what was a caste system in India. The, The word is a Portuguese word. But the idea of what caste actually means, I mean, caste... Has multiple meanings in English. One of them is the mechanism that's used to hold fractured bones in place. You put a cast around the bones in order to keep them in a fixed place. You think about cast in a play where you have people, you know, characters who are all supposed to, you know, follow a certain script. And everyone knows their lines, and they may even know the lines of other people. And everyone knows where they're supposed to be when the play is ongoing. And we just absorb those things, but all of them having to do with placement, where you fit, who belongs where, who is stepping out of his or her place. And everyone knows it's embedded in the thinking of it, but we don't often see it. And so that's the reason why I see cast as the underlying infrastructure that delineates and categorizes people by many, many different metrics. I mean, e- even in any caste system, I mean, I would add, I mean, this is my, you know, spending all this time looking at it primarily from the American perspective, but reading as much as I could, was the idea that any kind of human ranking could take any possible characteristic and use that to create a hierarchy. I mean, I have a reference to people being tall or short. I mean it could have just as well been that in the, in the United States as it was forming or in the Western world as it was created it was colonizing the, the
1: West. yeah you you talk about this great you talk about this experiment done by a school teacher where for part of the day she said the people with blue eyes are dominant and then the rest of the day the people with brown eyes are dominant and that was a very compelling portion of the book. Within 15 minutes, the superior-eyed people, so to speak, began to engage in behaviors that they had not engaged in before and began to act in a demeaning way towards the others in an entitled way just on the basis of an arbitrary decision by a teacher to differentiate them in a hierarchy based on eye color.
2: Based on something that they couldn't control and, as you say, was completely arbitrary. The stunning thing about that case and dispiriting on some level is that they were such young children, for one, and that the way that she set it up, she set it up by saying the brown-eyed children are not as smart. The brown-eyed children do not work hard. The brown-eyed children are slow. And therefore, the brown-eyed children will not be able to stay out on the playground for as long as the blue-eyed children. They will not be able to get second helpings at at lunchtime. But the blue-eyed children who are smarter and more responsible, they will get to stay out on the playground longer and they will get to have all of these additional things that they can do. And one of the things that happened is that as the experiment was beginning, she told the children to then turn to a particular page in the book, in their textbook. And one little girl was taking a little longer to find the page and the teacher purposely as part Her experiment said, you know, haven't you, why haven't you found it yet? Why, why are you still looking for it? You're holding up the class. And then one of the other little boys, who was a blue eyed boy immediately said, well, she's a brown eyed. He
1: he instantly. How quickly, how quickly that can happen, right? (laughs) It is dispiriting. Um, Very dispiriting. So, but you, you say something else, going back to what you were discussing a moment ago about words and their meaning and whether people listen properly or not. And when people start talking about race and racism, there are some folks that maybe don't listen in the way that they might otherwise. And one of the reasons that maybe you talk about caste is based on this sentence that you have in the book where you say, caste is insidious and therefore powerful because it is not hatred. It is not necessarily personal. So by framing these issues as, as a matter of sort of caste hierarchy, as opposed to racism, which implies hatred and implies something quite personal whether it's directed towards a group or an individual person, is the value of that that it, it enhances the dialogue? And is there a potential criticism that it lets some people off the hook whose behavior is not really sort of this subconscious understanding of caste but really is intentional hatred and racism?
2: Oh no! They actually no. Thank you. That's such a great distinction you're making. No, this is not to say at all that racism does not exist. I mean, I, I acknowledge and say that it's a tool. It is. It serves a purpose in animating and triggering and in uh, being the sort of the loudest voice in the room when it comes to something like this. You know, cast as I said, is the is sort of the worn grooves of routines and assumptions, and what we accept is the, the sort of the laws of nature. This is where these people are, and this is where these people are. And when we are planning to meet, we're we're told that we're about to meet a person who is the the CEO of this company, or we're going to meet someone who is you know a homeless person. There are certain things that come to mind in our society, that everyone has been exposed to what these things, who is presumed to be where in our society. We make assumptions on the basis of gender, we make assumptions on the basis of ethnicity, on the basis of race and and, uh, national origin.
1: But but are those things sexism and racism? Let me quote back to you from something in the book. And by the way, the reason I'm quoting from you so much is there's so much much memorable in here. I, I don't usually do this. And if we were doing this live and in person, you would see how many post-its I have. Very colorful oh, post on the book. And you say this, and I think this is interesting. I wonder what people's reactions will be. In, you say, quote, in everyday terms, it is not racism that prompts a white shopper in a clothing store to go up to a random black or brown person who is also shopping and to ask for a sweater in a different size. Or for a white guest at a party to ask a black or brown person who is also a guest to fetch them a drink as happened to Barack Obama as a state senator. And then you tell many, many stories, including about yourself, where a, some, when you were a New York Times reporter and the person you were going to interview who was white just wouldn't believe that you could possibly be a New York Times reporter. And you say that's not racism. Other people would say it is. Can you, can you elaborate?
2: Let me say that uh, that racism and what you might say casteism or caste at work can inter- interconnect overlap and and be occurring at the same time. It's not to say that they're not cast is the underlying basis of all of these other isms, and so a person might not openly see themselves as racist. There are many, many people, or probably the majority of people, do not see themselves as racist. And if they don't, then I would say we have to say we have to say, oh, we have to go along with it. I mean, how, how do you how do you suss out a person who's racist? I mean, do you is there a trial that one has just to, to to nail someone to the wall to say pin them to the wall and say yes you are? I mean, what have we what have we achieved if we Focus in on that and that alone as the deciding factor of who is a, a good person or a bad person, which is often how it gets conflated. That does not mean that they are not happening at the same time. What I would say is that if one is racist, then they are automatically castus. Castus goes underneath it. I mean, castus is, is is the infrastructure. It's the foundation for all other isms that that affect where a person is positioned or assigned or placed in a hierarchy. But you could conceivably be cast as meaning you are invested in maintaining the hierarchy as it is without even maybe even maybe even being aware of it and your actions might reflect that, but you feel no personal animus toward people who look a certain way. And you would say, I do not hate the pe-. If a person says they don't hate, what do you do with that? I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think it's important to take emotions out of it, because a person can easily deny the emotion. They can easily look pat. They can say, no, no, no. They could be waving a Confederate flag and still say, I'm the least racist person you'd ever meet. I mean, this is part of our everyday parlance. I mean, you hear that. You hear something along those lines all the time. And so I, I feel as if it's been so derailed that maybe it's time for new language. Maybe it's time for us to see ourselves differently. You know, to allow us to look through a different lens that is that is not freighted, at least in the American sense of the of the word, with the same emotions of shame and guilt and blame and and deflecting and derailing all the things that happen when when these words get used allow us to see it allows us to see ourselves differently using language that has been used in the past to describe American hierarchy. I am not the first person by any means to put this word out there in reference to the United States. It's been used for you know for a century and a half going back to the time of the Civil War for certain. So this is this is just a way to allow us to perhaps look at, explore, how else we might see ourselves, given that this word has been used in the past and many aspects of it do apply to us now. And that's the reason for all that. I view it as kind of like an X-ray of the country.
1: So Isabel, I'm going to quote from your book again, because what you just said strikes me in some ways as, as going to the heart of the matter. How do you explain to people who don't think that they're terrible, who don't think that they're racist, who don't think that they're bad, how do you explain to them what the problem is and that they have to be engaged in the solution also. And you use a lot of great metaphors in the book, one of which is the metaphor of a house. You say, with an old house, the work is never done and you don't expect it to be. And you say, America is an old house. And then I think even more compellingly to carry on the metaphor, you say, quote, many people might rightly say, I had nothing to do with how all this started. I had nothing to do with the sins of the past. My ancestors never attacked indigenous people, never owned slaves. And yes, not one of us was here when this house was built. Our immediate ancestors may have had nothing to do with it, but here we are, the current occupants of a property with stress cracks and bowed walls and fissures built into the foundation. We are the heirs to whatever is right or wrong with it. We did not erect the uneven pillars or joists, but they are ours to deal with now. And any further deterioration is in fact on our hands, end quote. That seems to me to go right to the heart of the problems we have in the country and is very understandable. Why is it so hard for people to get that point?
2: it's this is not a pleasant thing to to think about to think about. I mean, if you're in a house, an old house, you don't want to think about the things that are wrong with the house. I mean, after rain, you don't want to go into the basement after a rain and confront whatever may be in there if there's a leak in the basement. You would rather not have to think about it. If you can manage to you know to move about in your life and in your world without thinking about it, of course, it's human to not want to think about those things. But as I say, You know, if you don't go into the basement after rain, it's at your own peril. You will have to deal with the consequences of whatever's going on in the basement, whether you choose to look at it or not not looking at it doesn't make it go away and you will have to to deal with the consequences at one. You know, eventually one way or the other you'll have to and that's why I make use of the, the metaphor it came to me that that was one way to remind ourselves that we are in fact all in this together that some of us may be affected more or less you know like if you have a big apartment building and there are some people who are on the side of a building where the roof is leaking and they get more flooding or they get more damage and then you're in another part of the building that doesn't have that and so you don't have to think about what people who are dealing with the the leaky roof in the other side of the building have to think about. Yes, you may, you may say, oh, that's unfortunate, but you don't have to live with it. And you might not do anything about it because you, you don't have to deal with it. The problem is 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 when we deny that other people are experiencing these challenges to due to what we have inherited. That is where the problem comes in. I mean if you and also the problem comes if we do not know what is going on in our in our house, our collective house. There comes a time when if people are not taught and a lot of a lot of the history, I mean, when the Warmth of the Suns first came out, a lot of people came up to me afterward and they said, I had no idea. These are people who lived through the era that I'm writing about. And they said, I had no idea was not being taught in the schools. The Great Migration didn't get taught in the schools. And so on some level, if people don't know their history, it means that, you know, you, you cannot expect complete awareness if people have not been taught. But once you know, that's when the responsibility comes in. I mean, once you know, uh, that something is wrong, then there comes the responsibility to do something about it. I mean, I actually pictured myself in working on this book as like the the building inspector, the, the inspector of a building. And the building happens to be, you know, a country. And I, you know, I, I'm presenting essentially this report. This is, it's a, really a prayer for people to hear and to listen, open their hearts to 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 take in this report, an x-ray of our country. And then once you know, then the, then the responsibilities come, especially for those who have not had to deal with the roof leaking in their particular apartment. For people who have not had to deal with the downsides and uh, deprivations that come from being uh, assigned to a subordinated, subjugated caste historically with shadows to the current day, the responsibility then does fall on all of us because we all have to live with the consequences. And we may be hurt even though we may not realize it, but we, everyone is, is hurt by this. And, and that's where the responsibility comes in.
1: So you choose to examine caste in this country in comparison and not so much contrast, mostly in comparison to so-called caste systems in India and also in Nazi Germany. I'll get to the the German example in a second, but going back to the Indian example, you tell a story about how Martin Luther King Jr. traveled once for a month to India, in part because his approach of nonviolence was one that was embraced by, by Mahatma Gandhi and others to gain independence from India. And you tell a story about how Martin Luther King is talking to folks about the caste system and as people may know, and they will come to know more if they read your book, the lowest caste in India is the so-called untouchable, the, the Dalit. And their lot in life is is very, very poor. And there's very little they can do to get out of that lot in life. And many of them are relegated to doing the worst jobs that other people don't want to do, cleaning, etc. Explain the revelation that King had when he was having a conversation in India. Well,
2: he was very excited to go because he so admired the nonviolent protests of, of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, of Mohandas Gandhi, and he uh, was received by the prime minister with a very beautiful uh, arrival there. And then he made a, a trip to visit a Dalit school, which, what would have been called a, a, an untouchable school, a school where the students and, and everyone there, uh, the people working there, were part of the um, what were, was then known as the untouchable caste. And so upon arrival, and a principal that uh, introduces him to the children, and he says, you know, children, let me, uh, young people, I want to introduce you to a fellow untouchable from America. The head of the school made the connection between the African-American experience that he was seeing on the news from the civil rights era, civil rights movement, made the immediate connection and introduced Dr. King as an untouchable from America, and upon hearing that, Dr. King had not made that connection initially, and he actually was a little peeved to have been described that way. He didn't see himself as that. He viewed himself as, in the words, would have been an American Negro at that time. He was very celebrated. So he didn't, he'd had dinner with the prime minister. He did not see himself as an untouchable. And then he thought about it and he remembered that, you know, he was at that very stage in his life advocating on behalf of people who were, even at that moment, the vast majority of them denied the right to vote. The civil rights legislation would not come until many years after. Several years after that, uh, they were held, as you described, to the lowest positions, particularly when they were in the American South. But even when they went to the North, they were assigned to the dirtiest, most dangerous jobs in the foundries and the steel mills and the factories. Uh, They were sharecroppers. They literally were assigned to the lowest rung in uh, American society. And he was fighting on their behalf. And he thought to himself, yes, I am an American untouchable. And every Black person in America is an untouchable. He made that recognition. I mean, another, yet another example of someone who was so very lauded and and, and honored. He made the connection, too, after being exposed to and seeing how he was viewed by by untouchables there, he recognized it as well. And he actually gave a a sermon on the 4th of July in 1965 at his church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, in which he relayed that story, which is one of the reasons that we know about it. He relayed that story uh, about how he came to the recognition that the United States had a caste system and that people like him had been assigned to the bottom of it.
0: State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Let's move to Germany. And I imagine that some people will not love the idea of comparing what you call the American caste system to what Nazi Germany was like. In part because some people I imagine would say, well whatever you say about the caste system in India or the United States and how much exploitation there was and how much death there was and how much lynching there was, there was not an ideology of the final solution of utter elimination, which there was ultimately in Nazi Germany. But that said, you tell another story. I'm going to be quoting from the book again. You tell another story, but at least sort of early in the Nazi regime that I had not heard before, and it brings a lot of things home. In June of 1934, various academics and officials in in Nazi Germany, were trying to get together because they still cared a little bit about reputation and trying to figure out how they might pass these blood laws and what the, you know, the language should be to prevent intermarriage. And they needed a prototype. And they sat around and they thought to themselves, well, in America, we have a pretty good example. We have a pretty good precedent. And the more they thought about it, some of them you recite in the book said, you know, we can't even believe that that's really enforced in the United States. But the passage that struck me the most was, was the following, quote, mindful of appearances beyond their borders, for the time being at least, the Nazis wondered how the United States had managed to turn its racial hierarchy into rigid law, yet retained such a sterling reputation on the world stage, end quote. How did they manage to do that?
2: How did the United States manage to do that? Yeah. Well, I have to preface this by saying that what propelled me to Germany was Charlottesville, which is how, which is the way to even get to the answer of what you just asked, and that is that you know after charlottesville that contention over the statues in the the confederate and nazi symbolism that fused together among the ralliers themselves and that that battle over memory memory, memory of the civil war and of slavery and 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 how do we define um, heroes in, in America? So that this the connection was made by the people who were protesting in Charlottesville. They made the connection with the symbolisms of flags and the swastikas of Confederate flags and swastikas that they themselves carried, and in fact replicated one of the some of the the marches that would have occurred in Germany during that time. So the focus for me was not initially the Nazis themselves, but actually how Germany had worked in the decades after the war, after World War Two, to reconcile its history and to atone for it. So what had they done? And that was my, that's what brought me to, to Germany in the first place. And, you know, the deeper I looked into it, then I, you know, I, I, came across or discovered, made these connections, I discovered these connections that I would never have imagined myself. I, I, I had no idea that German eugenicists were in continuing dialogue with American ge- eugenicists, that American eugenicists wrote these books that were big sellers in Germany in the years leading up to the Third Reich. And it was Gut wrenching to see the, these connections, and then of course, the, you know, having to remind ourselves at all times that the Nazis needed no one to teach them how to hate—absolutely no one—and of course, they carried it further than anyone who could would ever have, you know, imagined. as incomprehensible what they ultimately did. Well, what they did before that moment was they 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 actually sent researchers to study America's Jim Crow laws and to, to see how Americans had subjugated and segregated African-Americans. And they, as you did, the, the meeting that you talk about in June of 1934, they were debating and consulting American law as they were devising what would ultimately become the Nuremberg Laws. And as you said, it was shocking to see that that some of them didn't even believe that, that the United States would have gone to the lengths that they were discovering that it had. I think that they they were interested in finding a way to justify what they were doing. And they turned to the United States in in order to do that. And also to see what what were the possibilities about how they could do it with the, what we call anti-miscegenation laws, laws against intermarriage between people of different quote unquote races, which would be equivalent to its endogamy in the Indian context of the language is often endogamy and here it's anti-miscegenation laws. In Germany, they were seeking to find ways to um, maintain whatever reputation they perceive themselves to have had in that early going and to look for ways that other places had done it. And the place that they turned to, they looked other places, but the place that they turned to finally was the United States.
1: Do you think it's in human DNA or social DNA for groups to want to be superior to at least one other group? Is that just an inevitability that we have to deal with a pathogen, as you might say, or can we outgrow that?
2: I would like to believe that, you know, there they have there may have been a time when there was long 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 ago when humans did not have access to the technologies and advancements that we now take for granted where it was people were out in the frontier, out in the wilderness, out on the land and were in danger perhaps every almost every minute of their lives that people needed to band together uh, in order to protect themselves. But we have advanced as a species, and we are now at a point where we, we have at our instant access information that others before us could not have imagined, I would like to believe that because of the advancements and because of the, in some ways, the luxury of being able to to sit and to contemplate and to read and to, you know, in a, you know we might have a question that comes in our mind and we can instantly find the answer, you know, on, on our devices. I mean, we, we have the luxury of, of being able to see things differently and not to be fighting each other because there are much greater challenges that we face as a species, that the planet faces, uh, that you know we should find, we should be in a position of of coming together somehow to recognize the greater threats to human happiness, human health, human human wealth. The fact that that we still have these um, health challenges that can do such damage to human beings. Why do we not have a cure for cancer? Why do we not have solution to? Uh, challenges of polluted waters that people are having to deal with, for example, in Flint, Michigan, even to this day. I mean, why are these things, you know, we should be so advanced as a, as a species that some of the things that make life so much more challenging for people, it seems to me that there should be a way to push back, you know, to find ways to, to transcend them. And I would say that one of the greatest um, tragedies of any caste system, any hierarchy, such as those that I'm describing, is the lost potential and lost lives, of course, of people who did not have the opportunity to live out their life's potential, whatever talents and and gifts they might have had for over generations. I mean, speaking of the United States, which is the focus of this book, you know, for 246 years, 12 generations of people, African-Americans who were not permitted to live out whatever expertise ever, talent they might have had. I and mean, if you think about those those cotton fields and rice plantations and sugar plantations and all those different plantations, there were opera singers and jazz
1: musicians and lawyers. You have, a, you have a chapter about Satchel Paige, the pitcher who, you know, people know. And he had a little bit of a career in the major leagues, but most of it was denied him. You have a lot of real examples like that. You know, this, this concept of not wanting to be the bottom rung, I think you even have a, a chapter or a section entitled the necessity of the bottom rung. It helps certain people perpetuate their power. And a, an observation you make, I think, is, is an important one as people think about the last election, and as they think about power and voting in America now. And it has to do with this observation that some liberals have, which is, why would some people in America, working white class or, or, or poor white citizens, voters, why would they vote against their interest? And you say this in your book, Why some people on the left keep asking, why, oh, why were these people voting against their own interests? The questioners on the left were unseeing and yet so certain. What they had not considered was that the people voting this way were, in fact, voting their interests. Maintaining the caste system as it had always been was in their interest, and some were willing to accept short-term discomfort, forego health insurance, risk contamination of the water and air, and even die to protect their long-term interests in the hierarchy as they had known it. What is that long-term interest in a system that is not doing much for them?
2: Well, that's assuming that the system is not doing uh, much for them by the standards or the even unspoken and even maybe unrecognized when you think of unconscious bias, the unconscious messaging that that everyone in a caste system receives, that the less one has to fall back on in a competitive, really forbidding economy uh, that has very little in the way of a safety net compared to other Western nations. The less you have to fall back on in the way of education, wealth, job security, uh, the more one may rely on inherited status that's accorded to people in the dominant caste over the you know the history of this country. And that means that there'd be a greater investment. The greater the investment, the less one has to fall back on, the greater the investment there would be in maintaining the hierarchy as it has been known, because that has been the means by which. You know, as I was saying before, you know, the idea of standing and respect and benefit of the doubt that and and access to resources that that are deeply known by people up and down the hierarchy. There was a professor in uh, Andrew Hacker, professor who uh, asked his students, used to ask his students, his white students, how much would you have to be paid? How much would you expect to be paid if you knew that that you would have to spend the next 50 years of your life? As a black person in America, how much would you how much would you want to be paid? What what, you, what would you think would be a fair compensation for the uh, for being transferred into a different caste, you might say? And they got the students would get together and they you know figured out in one of his classes they got together and, and figured out a number and the number that they came back with was fifty million dollars, one million dollars for every year that they would have to be black, that they would have to be African American, and so people know. They know the value uh, that, that's inherited and not of anyone's doing. No one asked to be at any station in, in the caste system. I mean, you are born where you're born and um, you have nothing to do with it. So this is not about blaming in any way, shape, or form. This is about recognition that once you once you see the almost unspoken hierarchy that positions one some people above other people people know that there's a value to that. And I think the students in that professor's class, you know, get at what I'm talking about here.
1: There's this other phenomenon that goes on when people talk about racism and inequality in the country. And that is this, someone who has achieved something, who happens to be Black, either as an actor or an entertainer or an athlete, and says, well, the system's unfair. And then some folks will say, well, I don't know what you're complaining about from your mansion and with your collection of Rolls Royces, et cetera. And you tell some stories about how you no fame and success don't protect you always. There's a, not from as erudite a source as you tend to cite in your book, but the comedian Chris Rock, I think, talked about this in connection with police brutality. He like, said, yeah, I'm famous, but not at a distance. Right, yeah. Respond to the folks, because again, this is another thing that I think should be very readily understandable, but people keep making this point. Respond to the folks who say, Oprah Winfrey or LeBron James or whoever else have no business or right to complain about how Black people are treated in this country.
2: So I I describe caste as the bones, race as the skin, and class as the clothing, diction, accent, education, the things that one can change about oneself. And in any society, there are going to be exceptions to any rule. And um, there are some incredibly exceptional people who were born into the subordinated caste or the historically subordinated caste In America and uh, in India as well, who have managed, despite all of the odds, to persevere with fortitude, talent, all that it took in order to transcend the barriers and to rise to very high in their society. There are a lot of things I could say about that, one of them having to do with occupational. How caste represents itself in occupations. I mean, in occupations, the opening for African Americans has tended to be in uh sports, in uh music and and entertainment, because during the originating decades uh, formation of this hierarchy in the caste system, which was actually a legal caste system. There were actually laws that indicated, there were attempts to say what black people could do legally and then it extended to the culture. So that there are certain fields that have been more uh, open to African-Americans over time, and one of them having to be entertainment, uh, the enslaved people were often used for entertainment. They were, were there's a famous scene out of Twelve Years a Slave in which they were roused from their sleep in order to entertain at the, two in, two in the morning or whatever to entertain the owner. Uh, they were you know tired from having um, you know worked you know 15 hour days tending to the sugarcane, and then they had to go perform. And so that that actually is a, a very old through line in how a You know, roles that people play percolate through a society. So that's one thing. One thing is that that's that has been an area of of opening for people that has meaning even in the current day. The majority of the the wealthiest of of African-Americans tend to come from those fields, people where they they were among the most talented maybe of of humans and of Americans in whoever did whatever they're doing. And then they often became moguls in that field that that's where a lot of the billionaires, the wealthiest African Americans tend to come from. But the interesting thing is that, that there's several things to say. One is that despite these people that we can identify as among the most recognizable and wealthiest people in the United States, the situation for the majority of African Americans is so disparate compared to their white counterparts that despite these people that, whose, whose names come to mind, we know these are among the wealthiest people among us, even factoring them in to the, the collective, collective wealth of African-Americans, with them factored in, African-Americans still have only one-tenth of what their white counterparts have in the way of wealth. And this is over the course of generations of being legally Excluded from the opportunities to build wealth, they, to to you know live the American dream, something so basic as getting a mortgage was not uh, available to African Americans. At least a, a government-backed mortgage, government-backed mortgages were not available to African Americans because. The redlining meant that the places that were forbidden to the government would not back the mortgages were neighborhoods where Black people live. So Black people were not able to, you know, make the most of or even make use of the most common form of wealth building in America. It is literally the American dream. They were denied by law from the American dream until the 1960s. So the idea of African-Americans as a whole being able to make to actually enter the mainstream is very very new. So in spite of the fact that we have these incredibly wealthy people in that group, the group as a whole is still laboring under the deficits and the deprivations, legally sanctioned deprivations of all the generations that preceded them. And then one other thing I want to say about this is that when I say I say that class, you know, is the clothes and the diction and the accents and the things that we can control, the fact of the matter is if you can in the way that I look at it If you can act your way out of it, it's class. If you cannot act your way out of it, it's caste. And so the high-ranking people, the recognizable people, uh, many of them have examples, I mean, I include some in the book myself, of you're going about your day, and I don't put myself in a category of these people, but I'm saying any person who is a professional who's moving about in the world, an African-American, could be in an instant reminded, of their caste category, there's an example uh, out of, of out of the UK. That's an interesting one. That's just a recent one where the editor of British Vogue and uh, a person of Af- a man of African descent, he was entering his building. He's the editor of British Vogue, and he's told by the security guard to use the loading dock. The loading freight elevator in his own office building, and that means here's someone who would have been dressed maybe better than almost any human. Really, if you imagine the editor of Vogue would be very well dressed. I would imagine, and, yes. And then told to use the loading elevator, freight elevator, in his own building, and so if you, you cannot act your way out of that kind of intrusion of caste, caste being, you know, the example of where who belongs where who is expected to be doing what? You know, what are the, the, the boundaries and barriers, boundaries and, and assumptions about who should be doing what? He was not expected to be of someone of that stature and it was the recognition of that on the basis of his of what he looked like meaning the things that the very things that you cannot change about yourself he could change his clothes he could have, he could change his accent he could change his diction he could do all of that but he could not change the signifier of where someone fits in the caste system
1: so let's end with talking about what we do about all this you're the building inspector what are your prescriptions for how we fix this old house that is america and And one of the things I'd like to hear you elaborate on is a concept you mentioned in the book of radical empathy. Where do we go from here?
2: I have to say that if you bought a house and the building inspector comes in and delivers their report, the building inspector does not tell you what you need to do. The building inspector presents to you the problems that need to be addressed. And that is how I see myself. If I had wanted to take another five years on this, I, I would have done the additional research in order to be able to come up with, you know, a 10 point plan about what this would be. But I would say that we're talking about something that is 400 years old. You know, we're talking about an embedded Hierarchy that we've inherited that you know gets affirmed and all in billboards and television commercials and you know every, you know who gets killed first in a movie. I mean we we know and we have been exposed to this for so long that you know that even a third of African Americans hold unconscious bias against themselves. So this is long and this is deep and I would never. Presume to say these are all the answers because the answers have to come from all of us. It cannot come from one person. It will not come from someone who who is you know born to what would be viewed as the subordinated caste. There's not. It, there. It, this falls on on everyone to first of all do the work to know our country's comprehensive history, and then to search ourselves and find the ways that we as individuals can do something in our own lives looking very hard and deep and then for others who are in positions of making policy and I'm not I'm a writer not a policymaker to also do the work of knowing our country's history and and looking clear-eyed at the x-ray of our country to come up with solutions to the to our collective problem because we are all in this building together and it's not generally the building inspector doesn't make the repairs anyway it's the it's the owner and we are all the owners of this building
1: we certainly are in the epilogue of your book you talk about Albert Einstein, who was a great ally in many ways to the so-called lower caste. And you write, quote, you know, you talk about how we have all these problems, but then, quote, and yet somehow there are the rare people like Einstein who seem immune to the toxins of caste in the air we breathe, who manage to transcend what most people are susceptible to, end quote. Do you have an observation as to as to what the qualities are in people that might make them immune the toxins of caste? Um,
2: I haven't given a tremendous amount of thought because I've just finished the book, but being asked this by you, and I'd like to explore this more and think think this through more because I think that that is something that this work does allow us all a window into. But I would say that, first of all, what I see consistent among the people who I would identify as, as being like Einstein would be people who have an essential comfort within themselves about who they are and what their own talents and abilities and abilities may be. In other words, how self-actualized are you to begin with? How comfortable are you with yourself? If you have insecurities, if you feel easily threatened, if you feel that others are, are gaining on you, doing things that they don't deserve because you, you should be here and you're not where you wish to be, that would be one of the things I would say would make it harder for you to have the the generosity of spirit toward others and, and might would make you more likely to be invested in keeping things the way that they are for whatever whatever benefit may be coming to you, whether you even have a name for it or not. So one of them would be a sense of self-actualization and an awareness of oneself and a sense of contentment within oneself, that they, you don't have to prove anything to anyone else. You see the world as, uh, you feel that, that you have been, that things are going well for you personally and you do not You do not need to see anyone beneath you in order to feel good about yourself. I mean, here's someone who was one of the smartest men who ever lived, and he was being told that people who looked a certain way, people who were African-American, were beneath him. And he, as the smartest person, one of the smartest people who ever lived, looked at them and said no i could i see them as like me i see the things i have in common with them and that means that he was very confident in himself clearly and intelligence alone does not mean that you're confident he just he just was i think that he had a sense of empathy a sense of connection with others he had himself escaped Nazi Germany, just before just before uh, the, the Nazis actually came into power, he barely escaped. But he could see the uh, injustices that were brewing. He could see the uh, ethnic tribalism and, and hatreds that were brewing. He could see that, and he could see the dangers of that, and he recognized how wrong that was. He recognized the dangers, I should say, of that kind of thinking, and could see even then how that could lead to something. And then I would say an essential sense of recognition of our common humanity. I mean, a recognition that we do have things in common, and you, you that you can learn and grow from knowing other people, seeing other people for who they really are, and a lack of, of a need to be better than someone else. I mean, a, a willingness to see that all of us have something to offer, even the short conversations that we might have when we're on a say uh, a shuttle bus to get from point A to point B, and you can you can have a, a lovely conversation with someone on a train. And you never know where that beauty in one in life might be, the beauty in humanity, seeing the beauty in humanity and feeling that you are rooting not for your team, but for the species as a whole, that that we all win a belief that there is something that we all gain when 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 everyone is at their very best.
1: I think that's a good note to end on. Isabel Wilkerson, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on this very important book. It really is a must-read. Thank- I really think Thank it you. is. And and if anyone needs any further encouragement to read the book, just pick up the New York Times review. It'll knock your socks off. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Isabel Wilkerson. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Curlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.